Welcome back to part two of my conversation with Lee Billings, author of Five Billion Years of Solitude, The Search for Life Among the Stars. We're on the verge of being able to actually analyze the contents of the atmospheres of some of these rocky exoplanets, which could tell us not that they're inhabited or that there's a technological civilization, but it would be some strong circumstantial evidence that there is some kind of at least industrial uh, processes going on. Uh, yeah, that, that's feasible. That's feasible. I, I will say, though, that, uh, you know, the, the best candidate for that, that that people like to talk about is uh, chlorofluorocarbons, right? CFCs, because, again, we're dealing with just our own little sample and what we've experienced in the past. If the aliens are using hairspray, we're going to know. <laughs> well, it, well I, I'd like to say so, but but those signals are really, really weak. So anything that, um, that, that we can imagine, any kind of thing that we can countenance. I mean, in theory, sure, you could have an entire civilization devoted to hairspray. Right. Right. And then they're just all that's that's their religion is they just spray this stuff into the air and that's all they do. And every Sunday, everyone does it in mass by the billions or trillions. That kind of scenario, you could in theory see something building up that we could see with instruments that we're contemplating now. Um, but something like what we did to our planet and what caused the ozone hole, that's kind of off the table for us to see. But again, you know, not everything's like us out there. Right. And and how similar things are going to be to us is a very big question. We don't really know the answer to it. Uh, but we could see things like that. We could certainly see things like uh, oxygen or methane. And on our own planet, those are the main things that signpost life. So if you think about looking at the at the Earth from another star, let's say the star is uh, 30 light years away or 50 light years away, you know, relatively close by in the big scheme of things, but that's really far away. Mm-hmm. So you could see, you know, if you could manage to get a picture of our planet, isolate its light from the overwhelming glare of the star, this little pale blue dot, right? Uh, you could look in its atmosphere and you could get that uh, atmospheric information from that light. You could see oxygen and you could see methane. And the fact that those things are coexisting together is, let's say, thermodynamically implausible. That's something that shouldn't happen. If you put those two things, oxygen and methane, in a sealed sealed box with you know room temperature and pressure, those are going to turn into carbon dioxide and, and water vapor. They aren't going to stick around. So you see them both together. That means something is constantly replenishing them. Obviously, on, on our planet, oxygen comes from, you know, things like cyanobacteria and uh, green plants. And then the methane comes from uh, these so-called uh, methanogen uh, single-celled organisms that uh, are anaerobic. They don't like oxygen. It kills them. And they live in, like, rice paddies and cow guts and stuff like that. So, uh, there, I mean, one, one point to that is that if someone is looking at us, in theory, they could be looking at our, our radio transmissions. They could be tuning into I Love Lucy and things like that. But that's that takes really, really, really big radio telescopes, really big, uh, bigger than we have ever contemplated building, bigger than we probably ever will build. I, I mean, knock on wood, right? But who knows? Uh, whereas, you know, something like oxygen, something like methane from that little pale blue dot, that's something that we could contemplate doing right now. You know, we know how to build a telescope that will do that right now. So... To me, that says if someone's watching us from far away, you know, they're probably not tuning in to uh, I Love Lucy. They're probably not uh, listening to our TV and radio. They're looking at our atmosphere and they're saying something's ticking there. Mm-hmm. Let's check it out more. So uh, the same way that, that the aliens could do that to us, we could do that to them. Right. Not to mention it significantly increases the time in which they'd have that data available to be looking at. If, a, if there's a civilization 300 light years away, 
they'll be able to see our atmosphere and know stuff that's what's going on chemically. Whereas to see I Love Lucy, they got to be within the last 60 years. Yeah. And, and it's pretty startling when you think about it, how far, you know, if you think about the sun and its light as kind of this ever expanding shell, this bubble of light that is moving at the speed of light out from the center, you know, from the sun and our solar system, obviously its edges are about 4.6 billion light years away. Uh, and really, you know, the first signs of life that we can find uh, are about three and a half billion years old. It was probably back there before then. The point is, is that uh, you track where the signals of, our, of Earth being alive are in space. I'm not saying something that far away could detect them. But, I mean, in theory, in theory, you know, all that stuff has already washed over all the nearby galaxies, all the nearby galactic clusters and superclusters. So that that ca- cosmic calling card, I guess, of our, our existence here, of life's existence here on the planet, you know, you can't put that back in the bag. That's way out there. So anyone who's really looking hard should know to some degree that we're here. Mm-hmm. Matt Mountain is a great name. <laughs> he's one of the central characters in the book. Yeah, Matt Mountain is, uh, I have to say, probably the most eloquent statesman uh, for this this grand quest that I try to lay out in the book, which is, again, you know, we shouldn't just be finding these planets. We shouldn't just be stamp collecting and saying, oh, you know, there's another planet. Oh, there's another planet. Look at this book of planets I have, and we have them by the thousands. Isn't that cool? It's not about stamp collecting. It's about going out and not just finding these things, not just detecting them, but actually studying them and figuring out what they're like. What are their atmospheres like? What are their surfaces like? What are their climates like? Do they have anything alive there? The way we do that, the best way that we know how, is to build a big space telescope. Matt Mountain is the director of the Space Telescope Science Institute. Uh, He's extremely well-spoken, extremely eloquent, and he has been, um, I think, a tireless, uh, careful advocate of this for quite some time. And he thinks that it's a worthy mission for NASA. And it's the kind of thing that can uh, be a potent uh, synergy for a space program. Because if you think about it, uh, well, there's two sides of the space program. People like to pit them against each other. There's kind of robotic exploration and big space telescopes. And there's the human stuff. There's the meat and tin cans. You know, let's go to Mars. Let's go to an asteroid or the moon, whatever. Well, you can have these things work in synergy. And we've seen this before with, with the space shuttle and the Hubble telescope. The reason why the Hubble telescope revolutionized so much of science and why it was such a huge success, despite, as people, you know, my age and your age will remember, uh, despite being a huge initial boondoggle at first, it had a flawed mirror, it wasn't going to work, it was a, it was essentially written off. Well, the space shuttle could visit it again and again and service it. It serviced it five times over its life. Each time, you know, this crack team of astronauts went out there, risked their lives, were basically doing, like, fine surgery wearing un- oven mitts and, you know, like a, like a welder's mask out in the vacuum of space. But they made this thing work. They made it a new telescope every single time, essentially. And the point is, is that you can have these synergies where we can build and service big space telescopes out there in space. We we can – this is a way to get over things like launch costs. It's a way to engage the um, – I think the human side of, of NASA's programs – while they're waiting around to go to Mars, while they're waiting to go to an asteroid or the moon, wherever, because that's going to take time. Uh, in the meantime, maybe we should get better at building big structures in space and servicing them, you know? And you can do that with robots, too. But this is something that Matt Mountain can actually talk about much more eloquent than I can. But uh, that is one of his his uh, thrusts when he sees this. The whole point is that we need to get bigger, better space telescopes up there so that we can actually study these planets and figure out what they're like. And Wesley Traub is another one of the cast of characters. That's right. Uh, you've gone. You've gone through the whole thing. So <laughs> Wesley Traub is uh, out at JPL, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which it runs along with uh, Caltech, the California Institute of Technology. And he is, uh, last I checked, the director of um, NASA's 
exoplanet exploration programs. He's kind of the, uh, the one who oversees a lot of that. And uh, he was really involved, actually. Uh, when I spoke to him, he was actually cleaning out his office. He, was, uh, he had all this paperwork built up in his office. I, I can't remember how, how many linear feet he had, but just boxes and boxes of paperwork. And he was cutting that down in half. So he was taking a lot of the literature that had accumulated over the past decade or two decades or so um, around this, this quest of building big space telescopes, and he was kind of throwing it in the trash can. And the reason why he was doing that is because uh, back in the mid-'90s, actually right around the time that uh, Jeff Marcy, the planet hunter we mentioned earlier, made uh, the first dis- or some of the first discoveries of exoplanets, NASA really got behind this, and they said, hey, we're going to build some of these big space telescopes. They called them terrestrial planet finders, TPFs. And we're going to build some of these things, and we're going to launch them. And Wes Traub got involved uh, circa, I think, 2005. He had been involved uh, earlier, but JPL hired him in 2005 to come lead this effort to, to make this happen. Originally, they were going to launch two of these things, two TPFs, uh, one in visible light and one in infrared light. And we can go there about why they're launching two instead of one. But the whole point is they were going to launch two. The first one was going to launch next year, Steve. It was going to launch in 2014. The infrared was going to launch. That was the optical. The infrared one was going to launch uh, before 2020. Now, you may notice uh, we haven't really heard much about that recently. And that's because in 2006, they got canceled. So the year after he got there, after Westrop got to JPL to build these big space telescopes to the tune of $50 million a year, trying to figure out the best ways to do it, all the engineering studies, uh, the rug kind of got pulled out from under him. And that was due to a lot of different things. Uh, astronomers were bickering with each other about uh, which designs would be best. They were uh, bickering um, with other astronomers about whether or not exoplanets were important enough to invest all this money in. A lot of, a lot of folks, uh, and I can see where they come from, a lot of astronomers are not really interested in planets. They're interested in colliding galaxies and mm-hmm. supermassive black holes and all these things that don't seem to have as much to do with life and with our existence here. And uh, they were worried that all these big uh, billion-dollar space telescopes for finding planets were going to essentially impoverish them and leave nothing for them to do. And that's a legitimate concern. Uh, there was also the, uh, the Constellation program, the effort to send uh, astronauts back to the moon, build, build a moon base and things like that, that um, uh, President George W. Bush um, uh, encouraged and, and planned. All these things served to uh, siphon money away from NASA's astrophysics efforts and um, create a lot of instability. And the end result was that, yeah, in 2006, the TPFs were, I believe the term was, deferred indefinitely, officially. And they were sent to uh, what I like to call the place where grand dreams go to die, which is uh, NASA's technology development programs, just kind of trickle-fed and kept on life support via a little IV. But, you know, we're not going to launch those things anytime soon, it seems like. So Wes Traub is, is, uh, is a great guy, kind of, I guess, a tragic figure in a way, just because, you know, he, he, like everyone else in the book, wants to make this happen, believes this can happen in his lifetime. And we're seeing these opportunities kind of slip away from us because right now NASA is saying, well, the soonest we're going to even think about doing that is in the 2030s. Mm. And uh, you also talk about Sarah Seeger at MIT. Sarah Sarah's an interesting one and, and, and very interesting character. Yeah, Sarah is um, a planetary scientist and uh, an astrophysicist. She kind of does both both things. And you know, she's a full professor at MIT. She's relatively young, um, in her 40s, early 40s. And to me, she does kind of represent, I guess, you know, uh, some hope for the future. She's very interested in building these uh, sorts of big space telescopes, these TPFs, these terrestrial planet finders. Uh, but increasingly, she's aware that um, 
that NASA may not be the right way to do that, that if you want to hitch your wagon to the federally funded, you know, big standard paradigm way of doing science that we've been doing for about the past half century or so uh, through things like NASA and the NSF, you know, you're going to be waiting a very long time maybe to get results. So she's made some waves recently by trying to get more involved with the commercial spaceflight industry, trying to get more involved with um, things like uh, CubeSats, these very, very small satellites that can be launched very cheaply. And she's really just trying to innovate and, and, and push the boundaries of, you know, what we can realistically expect to do in the next 10 or 20 years, uh, maybe without NASA's help. Maybe we can actually go out and find some of these life-bearing planets or potentially habitable planets out there. Maybe we can actually get those pale blue dots um, faster, uh, better and cheaper, right, without, uh, without getting NASA involved. I don't really know if that's true. Uh, but it's certainly something that's developing right now and brewing, and I think it's important to highlight that possibility. You're going to have to update this book in another five, ten years. Well, maybe. You know, NASA does have some things in the works that I was really fortunate that uh, a lot of these things kind of shook out right as um, right as the book went to press. So I was able to update some things. So, uh, for instance, NASA's Kepler mission, which we've mentioned earlier, which uh, has found more than 3,500 uh, planetary candidates, and there's probably thousands more still waiting in its databases to be analyzed. Uh, that mission, unfortunately, essentially came to an end back in May of this year when um, there was a spacecraft malfunction. It couldn't really uh, point itself properly anymore to, to survey for all these planets. It's got a bum wheel. That's right. It's got a bum reaction wheel, so it can't really uh, point very well. Now, they're looking at ways to fix it uh, and continue the mission, but the point is, is that the glory days of Kepler are, are, are over. They're in the past. But it's given us this great treasure trove of data. Uh, within that data, there probably are a few Earth-size uh, planets around sun-like stars that uh, are in year-long orbits. So it has, I think, achieved its primary mission. And, and the latest, latest news out of the Kepler mission, actually, it looks like about one in five sun-like stars, in the Kepler field anyway, in the little swath of the galaxy it's looking at, but I mean, you can extrapolate that. But about one in five sun-like stars seem to have an approximately Earth-mass planet in the habitable zone. Wow. So that's huge. And that's what we need kind of to spec out these big space telescopes in the future. The, the next thing that NASA is planning to do is to launch a mission called TESS, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. That's supposed to go up in uh, 2017. And that's going to be looking at uh, nearby stars, stars that are close to us for transiting planets. Um, Kepler looked for transiting planets, but most of the stars that it looked at were thousands of light years away. So they're not really good for follow-up study because they're just too dim. You can't get enough light from them. Tests will be looking at nearby stars, looking for transiting planets. And the purpose of that is for the James Webb Space Telescope that's supposed to launch in 2018. And Webb might be able to just maybe look for things like water vapor in some of these so-called super-Earth planets we're finding that are quite probably rocky, um, but, you know, anywhere between uh, two to five times the size of Earth or two to five times the mass of Earth. We could look at some of those planets when they're transiting around nearby stars and maybe see things like water vapor. But it's probably going to leave us at the cusp. It's probably going to leave us right at the cusp of what we really want to know, which is, again, whether or not they harbor life, whether or not they're really habitable in ways that we can uh, appreciate, whether or not they're really Earth-like. And I think to do that, you know, we're really going to kind of have to take the next big step. Uh, maybe there's some technological breakthroughs that no one can anticipate that are going to happen. But uh, I, I'm pretty confident, actually, that this is going to hold up. This book's going to hold up for at least the next decade. Um, so we'll see. Knock on wood again. Uh, what was the experience of writing the book like for you? Um, did you find yourself – you had obviously you had a huge interest in this field going in. So 
what what happened to you as you wrote the book? That's a really great question. Steve. I mean, did you get sick of it? Obviously not. Um, well, you know, I, I'm definitely. <laughs> I guess I'm at the point now where I'm like, what else can I really write about this? I'm, I'm kind of waiting for. Uh, at this point, we're waiting for the field to catch up. You know, there, there's a lot of speculation and a lot of dreams in there in the book about what we can do. Well, it's time we actually start to go out and do it. And uh, that's one thing that that I ended up feeling very strongly was kind of a a sense of sadness, I guess, and of of squandered opportunity and the notion that. You know, when we get back to the, what we started this conversation with, the notion of L, the notion of how long technological civilizations last on a planet like Earth, um, you know, you look around you, you can see various trends, you can kind of put them all together, and man, it's kind of a grim picture. You know, you see the, the, the world's brightest minds, the most passionate people you can think about, the smartest people you can think about, and they've devoted their lives to this quest to figure out whether or not we're alone, to find other Earth-like planets, to find out our prospects in this great, big, wondrous place we call the universe. And despite their best intentions, despite how smart they are, despite everything that they are doing right, they were stymied and stifled. And it looks like now this opportunity is slowly slipping away from us, at least slipping beyond uh, many of our lifetimes. So I was saddened by that. And, and, I, and I think that that's diagnostic and symptomatic of uh, just the general problems we have as a society. Whenever we want to try to come together to do great things, I think that, um, you know, it doesn't always work out, and uh, I hope it works out in this case. Uh, but I, I had that sadness, and then the other thing that really um, was also kind of sad, but also kind of happy, uh, it was this bittersweet feeling was was just talking to people like Mark Ar Mike Arthur, the geologist, talking to people like Jim Casting, this this expert on planetary habitability, and getting a sense of of how old the Earth really is, like how long. 4.6 billion years is in comparison to a human life because you can throw those numbers around and to most people that's just like you know an extra three zeros on the end of a numeric string but you know when you when you actually talk to people who appreciate the the depth of time and all that's happened in the past and how fleeting and ephemeral we are and yet how special we are how we are totally unprecedented in the history of the planet you know the cyanobacteria two and a half billion years ago they changed the planet like we're doing. They caused mass extinction. They polluted the, the environment and, and, and changed everything. But it was a whole class of organisms. It wasn't just one species. We are really unique. We really are. I mean, there's some kind of anti-Copernican element here. There's, you know, maybe we aren't as uh, mediocre and average as a lot of the physical sciences tell us. There's been a trend throughout hundreds of years now of uh, physical, sci physical science inquiry, you know, physics and astronomy and, and what have you, that says we're not special. You're not special. You don't matter. You're nothing. And that, I think in the, in the big cosmological scheme of things, you can make that argument. I don't think in terms of our galaxy, in terms of our planet, in terms of our solar system, you can make that argument anymore. I think there's a very good case to be made that we actually might be very special. This might be the coolest thing going right now in the Milky Way galaxy, what's going on on planet Earth. We don't know. The point is, is that we could find out soon if we put our minds to it. We'll be back right after this word from The Nature Podcast. This week, how UV rays cause skin cancer to spread, using crystallography to probe the deep earth, and Einstein's lost manuscript – Listen at nature.com slash nature slash podcast. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com. 
where you can read the article, Hundreds of New Exoplanets Validated by Kepler Telescope Team. That was written by our space reporter, Clara Moskowitz. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.